I find people love handouts. The challenge with them is, of course, you have to make sure they have them some minutes before you want to speak to them. Otherwise, you'll, all you'll see is people reading rather than paying attention to what you're saying. Good thing about this handout, not much actually to read there. Not a lot of content, and, but we'll be starting to, tonight in the top left-hand corner and going all the way down to the bottom right. No, just kidding. <laughs> Why I thought it would be helpful to hand uh, this particular document, something I've developed over the years of teaching concentration, is just to give you a sense of the place, the value of samadhi, of concentration in the Buddha's teachings. Sometimes people will ask, especially on this retreat, how important is it, you know, what, what's its role? And this map, the, these lists kind of give you a sense of in each of these very important lists, you'll recognize probably most of them if you've done any practice or study, concentration central to all of them, and just a, a pointing to how often the Buddha spoke about developing this quality of concentration or samadhi. So um, obviously right there in the Eightfold Path to just acknowledge that the meditation section of the Eightfold Path is called Sama Samadhi, right concentration. It's not called Samasati, right mindfulness. And the Buddha gave a broad uh, basket to it. It's Sama Samadhi, the Samadhi section. And then the five spiritual faculties, seven factors of awakening. It's what I'll be mainly talking about tonight. The jhana factors that Andrea talked about tomorrow night. Um, tomorrow night. <laughs> Wrong timing. Last night. Uh, the rewards of virtue. And again, Andrea mentioned that uh, in the first night, how, uh, how happiness um, and sila, how sila leads to happiness, leads to concentration. And then these kind of more deeper teachings, maybe we'll touch on them, transcendent, dependent, origination or arising, and the Anapadnasati Sutta. What's also interesting to notice as you look at these is, you know, as I, I uh, bolded where concentration is in the list, how often the prior steps, factors that we cultivate prior to concentration are joyful ones. Rapture, pity, sukha, um, pamoja, joy. Uh, again and again, contentment. These are the qualities that are the proximate causes of concentration. So really important for us to take that in, that there is nowhere on this list striving and judgment as factors <laughs> that support deepening concentration. It really is this gladdening of the mind, this sense of contentment and well-being that actually will enable us to deepen in um, concentration. So just thought it'd be helpful. We, we toss out a lot of terminology in a retreat like this. The talks are aimed at a... Um, a deeper level than a lot of retreats because you're all uh, students who've sat retreats before. Many of you sat many retreats and sometimes just helpful instead of thinking you have to try and remember it to have it written down and especially to see the Pali in uh, some of them. So that's basically all you need this for. You can put it aside if you wish, um, but just to get a sense of the centrality of, these, of this teaching on concentration and how important it is in a, you know, these meditative lists that lead to awakening. And the list that I'm going to talk about tonight, many of you probably heard of the seven factors of awakening or of enlightenment, 
is just that. These are the factors that we cultivate to bring the mind to a state that enlightenment is possible, that freedom is possible. And concentration is central to that list, to that deepening, to that unfolding. And even though um, I'm talking about it tonight and pointing to the concentration side of it, and we're in a concentration retreat, these factors get developed in any kind of meditation practice that we do. And it's just a, a matter of what we emphasize, what direction the practice goes. Um, and you know, in this retreat, focusing more on the concentration, but all of them are always important and always valuable. And I was motivated to um, reflect on, this, on these factors and do a talk on them from a retreat I did a number of years ago. Um, I did a six-week retreat at IMS, and I'd been doing a, quite a bit of jhana practice. Most of my retreats were about deepening concentration, but then, as is the intention in concentration practice, wanted to also um, turn that to insight. And so I determined that on this retreat, I would do two weeks of basically anapanasati, like you're doing mindfulness of the breath, to deepen concentration, and then do a month of vipassana, or insight practice. So my intention going in, that's what I did, two weeks of jhana, and I'd already done quite a bit of practice, so you know, was able to, to deepen in concentration. And then came you know, the arbitrary day that I said I would switch, and I noticed a lot of resistance in the mind because the seclusion and the, the pleasure that can come from the concentrated mind was very clear. You know, I was appreciating it. And it felt like I'd been in this cozy, warm house and I was about to open a door and go out into a wild storm. You know, it seemed like opening up to the six sense doors was going to just buffet me around. Of course, all projection. Um, I, you know, had determined to do this and one of the challenges of concentration practice, it is said that, you know, you can get kind of uh, attached to it. I noticed that happening. But, you know, if you're really doing it, I don't think that happens because it's the natural progression. It's the natural um, place the practice goes. So I did open up my practice from just secluded on the breath to um, all six sense doors available. And instead of this kind of buffeting, you know, kind of wild field of experience, what I found was the mind was very stable, very responsive, and able to actually be both steady yet alert. And the, the qualities of the concentrated mind were really actually just a great um, support for the practice of investigation and opening. So it was... Um, actually a a good experience ultimately and how often we can project about what the retreat is going to be or what a next experience is going to be and believe me we never know we never know but because of that you know both my resistance to opening and then finding that the mind was actually in a good place in a very balanced place to practice because of the concentration practice I started to just very naturally explore the factors of awakening in a way I hadn't before. I'd always heard this list and they seemed a little kind of, I don't know, elevated or maybe, you know, at some time I'd experience them or maybe just a little bit, but they were more accessible because the mind had been through this period of steadying and and deepening. And so I really looked at each one and kind of in a a very felt sense, um, 
how they manifested, what I knew about them from other teachings, from the texts, and really explored them. Because like anything, they're, they're mental factors, but we can feel them very physically. So it was a very rich and, and interesting exploration. And the practice with the factors of awakening is to um, recognize them first, to strengthen them, to support them, to develop them, and then bring them into balance. And it's actually a beautiful place in practice when we have that kind of sense of them being alive and responsive in that way. And so, as I said, these are the factors that the Buddha said get developed necessarily in any meditation practice that's leading towards awakening. They have to be present in some degree, in some degree of balance and depth. And as I said, for me, they seem sometimes a little distant, but what I've learned is you know, I think Andrea said, I often say, the Buddha was a great list maker or map maker. And even if we don't know where the map is heading, where the directions are heading, knowing that there is a map, um, reading about it, hearing about it, when we move into that territory, there can be this recognition, oh, this is what's happening. This is, um, you know, reassuring. There can be a lot of confidence or trust that we're going in the right direction because we're kind of um, on the territory the map is exploring. And, you know, there's it, it, map or list sounds very kind of linear or regimented. Believe me, it's not. It's much more fluid than that. But we can for ourselves recognize uh, these qualities and through that recognition, that's the first step in enlivening them for us. And, and so it can be very wholesome, very beneficial, and just this inclining of the mind. We can't, you know, will for these factors to be there. We can't control them. But through recognizing when they are there, even in very subtle ways, and inclining the mind towards them, being open, receptive, curious, these factors really can deepen and be very supportive uh, in our practice. And so it's a little bit similar to the list that uh, Andre went through last night of the jhana factors. That are, that are also qualities of mind, factors of mind that we develop in any kind of meditation practice. This is a, a, a sort of expansion of that list of, uh, of the jhana factors. So it's a list of seven. Um, there are three arousing factors and three calming factors. And then mindfulness, which is in the beginning, the middle, and the end, kind of suffuses the whole list and is always there and always necessary. And there is a linearity to this list, even though I just said there wasn't. There is. Um, but it's not, you know, again, black or white, fixed. Uh, they, there's feedback loops. You know, we might be more in one area or certain factors for a, a long time and then move on to others. Um, we might, you know, have a great predisposition to the calming factors and actually need to develop the energizing factors. We're all, we'll all be in different places, but there is a way that they actually lead onto and support each other, even as there's all these feedback loops and a kind of circularity to them as well. So it begins with mindfulness. Sati is the, the Pali word. And what we're practicing here is anapanasati. And that literally means mindfulness of in-out breathing. Mindfulness of the in and out of the breath, anapana 
sati. We're doing it here as a concentration practice, but as many of you have done on many other retreats, you didn't know you were doing concentration practice. You were on a Vipassana retreat and they said, start with the breath, and you did, and you probably uh, followed with the breath through most of the whole retreat, you know, most of your practice. What's helpful about this retreat is you get to recognize how to really cultivate mindfulness of the breath for concentration and what it looks like to then let that go. And we'll talk more about that uh, towards the end of the retreat, but to see that the breath can be used both for insight, vipassana, seeing clearly, seeing the changing nature of the breath, the nuance of the breath, the texture of the breath, the warmth, the coolness, the, the rough, the smoothness, the, the, the uh, sort of uh, discrete nature of each moment of breath, or for concentration, we, we're more interested in the simplicity of the breath. You could even say the stillness in the breath, a kind of um, very simple view of breath. And again, we'll talk more about that as the retreat goes on. But this word sati, even though, again, it, it's one we use a lot, certainly mindfulness is a translation we use a lot, practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness is in right now, I'm sure you've noticed. We're ahead of the curve a little bit, or maybe behind the curve. I'm not sure where we are, but that's what we've been teaching and practicing all these years. But it's interesting, there can actually be quite a bit of dissension among traditions and among different teachers about what it actually means. Interesting to, uh, I often ask people, and we have a conversation about what do you think mindfulness is? And there's a lot we can learn about what mindfulness is, could give a whole talk on that. But a simple definition is just present moment awareness. But what I think differs mindfulness from just the awareness a deer or a squirrel or a horse might have is there's a little bit of reflectiveness. We know we're being mindful. We know we're aware. And there's a kind of cultivation in that quality, um, that it's mindful for a purpose. It's cultivating that faculty of mind, and that's what really makes it mindfulness. And you can hear things like mindfulness is non-judgmental, it's kind of very neutral. Um, Again, we could have a whole discussion about those qualities of mindfulness, but they're all um, helpful understandings about this faculty of mindfulness. And the Buddha said something like, he knows of no other factor as powerful as mindfulness for the cultivation of wholesome states of mind and the diminishing of unwholesome ones. Meaning mindfulness itself has the function, and we know it's samasati, right mindfulness, wise mindfulness, when it's performing that function, where just the, this recognition, this clear recognition, um, actually decreases the hindrances and increases these wholesome qualities like the factors of awakening. That's part of the functioning of right mindfulness, that it does that. You know, ordinary, everyday mindfulness of just sort of knowing what you're doing doesn't necessarily do that, but samasati does. And again, we could do a whole talk about this, but this is not, uh, you know, we're not focusing on uh, mindfulness and its qualities. It's just here as a factor And we're using mindfulness, again, this is even though we call it a concentration retreat, we are using mindfulness to know the object, in this case, primarily the breath. So uh, mindfulness allows us to see this object of the breath and to know it clearly. 
this clear seeing leads to the next factor, which is Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of Dhammas. And Dhamma, you know, Dhamma is one of these Pali words that can, has a lot of meanings. I mean, the teaching of the Buddha, the way things are. Here it basically means things. Dhamma, Dhammas are also things. So investigation of states or experiences or objects. Because mindfulness, you know, sometimes <clears throat> we can think of it as a very passive kind of receptive quality. It's just all allowing whatever's happening. Um, and that is an aspect of mindfulness, but samasati is interested in what's happening. And as I said, has this function of increasing wholesome states and decreasing unwholesome ones. To do that, it needs to have wisdom, some um, um, What's the mindfulness wisdom? Samas- I'm losing it. Samasati, no. Mindfulness wisdom. Satipanya. Thank you, Ab. It was right there, and I was getting confused with samasati. Many people don't, many teachers don't talk about sati, mindfulness, without talking about satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. They go together. Wisdom, I mean, uh, mindfulness when it's really functioning as a meditation, as a development in the meditation, has wisdom, discernment with it. And that's how it's able to function in increasing the wholesome and decreasing the unwholesome. So this idea that mindfulness is just passive and we just sit there, I call that lump on a log meditation. It's not so helpful. Sometimes, you know, can develop calm and acceptance. But Dhamma Vichaya is also important, this sense of meeting the object with curiosity. Uh, often is translated as investigation, and I always felt that a little heavy-handed, like we had to get the scalpel out and dissect, or Sherlock Holmes with his magnifying glass, kind of really, you know, trying to figure things out. Um, Dhamma Vichaya can have a very light touch. Uh, Joseph translates it as interested attention, and I heard one teacher call it intimacy. And I really like that because what it really means is getting really close to experience. And I think especially in our concentration practice where we don't want to agitate the mind too much with figuring things out, that this term or translation of intimacy actually is really a good one. In the retreat that I mentioned, um, when I reflected on it, again, investigation felt too heavy-handed. And what I came up with myself was listening, but not just listening with the ears, but, you know, listening where the whole body is kind of alert, an inner listening, just that, you know, if someone says, shh, listen, and you just have your senses on alert to hear whatever there is to be heard, you can have that same attitude to any of the six sense doors, this sense of attentiveness. There's this beautiful story um, of a journalist talking to Mother Teresa, uh, the saint of Calcutta, she called, who served the poor so beautifully there, and was asking her about her practice of prayer and said, what do you do when you pray? Said, what do you say when you pray? And she said, I don't say anything. I just listen to God. And this journalist says, well, what does God say to you? And she said, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And if you can't <laughs> understand that, I can't explain it to you. And I love that image of the two of them just listening to each other and that energetic reverberation happening. This is a little bit what can happen, uh, what this Dhamma Vichaya is like. 
Now, in concentration practice, we don't emphasize investigation very much. We, as I said, don't want to agitate the mind too much. There really is this simplicity that we keep aiming for. I can remember being on one retreat with Joseph doing concentration practice and coming in and kind of very excitedly saying, I'm really seeing, you know, the three characteristics and the selfless nature of this. And he said, don't pay attention to that. I'm like, the three characteristics, don't pay. He said, no, that's, that's, a, that's a hindrance to the mind settling. I'm like, really? That, you know, it was just a really different way to relate. So even as I'm including, or Dhammavichaya is included in this list, the art of this practice is the right amount of investigation. Because what you do need to do or know for this practice of breath meditation is to know the breath intimately. You cannot expect to sit here hour after hour being with the breath if you don't care about it. You know, if you never thought about it before, or you, you know, and some people the breath is difficult, right? If you, if you don't care about the breath, it's really interested. We need to get curious about the breath to invite this level of care and appreciation for the breath. You know, it'd be a bit like, you know, coming on this retreat, if you didn't care about the breath, had never done breath meditation, be like all of a sudden just deciding to sign up for a nine day bird watching trip and you'd never even thought about birds before and be like, you know, everyone else would be rushing around with birds. You're like, what are you talking about? Birds, I don't care about. But you'd signed up, why would you sign up? I don't know if you know that people who are obsessed about bird watching are called twitches. They're like, where's the bird, where's the bird? That we don't want. We don't want to be breath twitches. But we do need to get really interested in the breath. We need to know the breath very intimately. And so you do. You are meditators. You, you do care about this experience of the breath. You've used it probably many times before. But here we're really deepening that relationship. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, one of our teachers who talks teaches breath meditation, uh, you know, he's one of these people who doesn't separate vipassana and samatha practice, or um, the breath meditation is integral to how he teaches vipassana, he teaches whole body breathing. He talks about thinking about the breath. His teacher, Adan Lee Damodaro, has a whole book called Keeping the Breath in Mind. And he says you really need to, as I've been saying, understand the breath. You know, we've been saying a little bit about this. What would be a more comfortable breath? What is the breath like right now? Get curious about the breath. And I don't think Andrea mentioned this last night, but she talked a lot about Vitaka and Vichara. And the literal translation, as I understand it, of Vitaka is um, directed thought. The literal translation of Vichara is evaluating thought. It has to do with this mental capacity of the mind to know, to think. So we're using that capacity of the mind to get closer, in this case, to the object of the breath, but it actually is helpful to think in a wise way, not a discursive way, about the breath. What is the in-breath? What is the out-breath? Where do you feel it most clearly? Where do you, how do you know it ends? Where does it begin? Where do you connect most easily? Which part of the breath? What happens when the out-breath ends? What, what is that like? Where do you most easily lose the breath? So using Vitaka Vichara as this kind of um, deep connecting 
as in really getting curious about to just the right amount. And again, we don't do this all the time, no. But especially if we're distracted or not connected or, you know, in the early parts of our practice, the days, early days of the retreat, early parts of a sitting, it's like, oh, how is the breath now? How can the breath be more comfortable? And again, we don't do this with will or agenda. It should be like this. It's a curiosity. It's an exploration. The practice is always tending to simplification. So even as I say this, you know, this is not to open the floodgates of just sitting here thinking about stuff. It's, you know, it's like homeopathic. It's the right dose, the minimal dose that you need to get this intimacy. And as you get interested in the breath, it gets more interesting. As it gets more interesting, you get more interested. And so this beautiful cycle and start, can start to happen where the attention naturally wants to rest with the breath because it cares about the breath. It's interested in the breath. And so it, it really does feed itself out of this right amount of thinking about the breath, of investigating the breath. And then we simplify, always simplify. So as this feedback loop gets developed, the next factor in this list starts to more manifest, and that's virya, energy. Virya, energy. And you've probably already clearly seen it. This practice takes energy. I mean, from the outside, it looks like you're just kind of hanging around, right? Sitting, walking, you know, wandering around, sitting still with the eyes closed. We can look out on the hall and you'll look like, you know, a hundred Buddhas sitting there, peaceful, serene. And, but it's not like that inside, right? There's a lot going on. There's a lot of effort, a lot of energy taken just to keep bringing the attention back. Keep the body upright. You know, work with the hindrances. Work skillfully with discomfort in the body to get yourself into the meditation hall. It takes energy to do this practice. But we often think of energy like a battery, not a rechargeable one. You know, if I use this energy, it's going to run down and then I'll be exhausted. But it really is more like a rechargeable battery. And the breath is the recharger. As we steady, it's, I should really say it's the mindfulness that's the recharger. We're just using the breath as the, as the object for the mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness. We actually create more energy. And you may find that, you know, now the third full day of the retreat. Remember how exhausted you were day one? That's why we don't even bother talking to you. You're all wandering around going, what am I doing here? What am I meant to be doing? What's the schedule? And where's the dining room? And, you know, figuring things out. So now we're kind of settled in. And you might find that there's more energy. So it's much more like going to the gym. The more you do it, you know, any kind of exercise, the stronger you get. So it's not something that wears down and wears out. But energy can seem kind of like hyper, you know, manic. It's not that on the retreat that I mentioned when I reflected on it, rather than energy, what the word that most clearly reflected what I think it was pointing to was resolve. And resolve to me is just like that, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to do it. You know, and it might be difficult in the moment or easy or challenging, but I've got this commitment and I'm going to keep putting in the energy just to keep showing up. So there's kind of a steadiness. Again, Joseph likes the word courage. 
whatever it is that just enables us to keep going, to get up in the morning, and maybe to get up a little earlier um, than we have been, to continue sitting through a difficulty. This is virya, this is energy. And as we do that, it actually deepens. Um, And we can learn that we don't need to trust that some teachers call it idiot compassion, you know, where your eyes pop open at four o'clock in the morning and you look at the clock and you go, I'm not getting up, it's too early, four o'clock, what do you mean? You know, I need more sleep, I couldn't possibly get up now. Get up, see what that's, you can always take a nap later, no one's keeping track of you. Get up and see what that's like. Or, you know, it comes towards the end of the day and you're like, oh, I've got to go to bed, I always go to bed at X. Check it out. What is it like to, you know, just do a little more walking, come to the nine o'clock sitting and see what it's like to practice metta and sweeten the mind and heart at that time of night. Don't assume the normal or the standard or what you always do. Virya is actually building on this retreat, so check it out. And then as we keep showing up, keep steady with the resolve, keep kind of expanding our capacity for practice, kind of filling in the edges. You know, we talk about being with the breath, you being with the breath in the sitting, being in the breath with the walking. Well, how about, you know, between the meditation hall and the dining room, or in the dining room, or in the shower? You kind of expand, and the momentum does build. Don't do it with any kind of ferocity of that's what it should look like, but to just keep being willing to show up in another place, in another time that you hadn't perhaps yet shown up. As that momentum builds, the next quality that Andre talked about last night of pity can develop. Pity, um, we usually translate it as rapture or rapt attention. And this is where the momentum of the practice, um, well, the practice has its own momentum. It's actually the, the attention wants to, is happy to rest with the object. And because of that kind of um, pouring of all of our attention and energy into the simplicity of the breath, this feedback loop of energy can build in the body and the manifestations of pity can happen. She said, I won't talk too much because she spoke about it last night. It always, you know, as soon as we talk about people's eyes light up and they go, yes, you know, that's what I want or that's great or I get some and like pity is great. And it's a two-edged sword, you know. Yes, it can be very blissful. It can be a sign of concentration, you know, a classic uh, experience of pity is like you have a thread at the top of your head and your body just straightens and sitting is effortless. You think, why can't I always sit like this? Why was I ever slumping? It's just so great to sit so straight. And then it collapses or, you know, goes away or it becomes contracted or, or stiff or heavy. You know, it can go in all kinds of directions. Don't get hooked on pity. This is not a three-ring circus. It's not about having those kinds of experiences. They're a, they, they have a place on the path, and it's an important place. Again, you can see pity uh, in a number of these lists, but it's a way station. We don't stop there, and we don't certainly, you know, focus our practice around getting it or have comparing mind. I don't have it. Pity can be very subtle at times, too. 
doesn't have to be these strong experiences. It can literally be just this sense of rapt attention with the breath, a lessening of the hindrances and an ease in the practice. That's also pity. So again, it doesn't have to be fireworks and dramatic. But this, as we do get more absorbed in the object, the sense of the awareness resting in the bowl of attention uh, and the breath, what's really interesting is from that, oh, and the thing I, I didn't say yet is what I notice in so many of these lists is they're, they're usually, they have an arc to them, like a bell curve. They have their foundation practices and they often... Um, the early uh, factors are ones that we can have some control over. Like again last night, Vitaka and Vichara, they're the engines of our practice. Those we can bring some intentionality to because they're simple. It's like, can we connect? Can we sustain? Most of the others are results. So there's these foundational practices that we can have some intention towards. Then there's usually some energetic practices, energetic factors, I should say. In this case, so we've got mindfulness. We can always come into mindfulness with intention. Um, we can investigate. Energy can build and we can actually, you know, support energy. Rapture, not so much. You know, that's more of a result, but there are these energizing factors. And then it always tips and goes into the direction of calming and simplifying. And so it's just helpful to know that because we can get, again, fascinated by the energetic side of practice and feel really good, I'm full of energy, and, you know, pity is happening a lot. But that's, as I said, just a way station to these calming factors. Direction always calming, simplifying. So interesting that out of pity, the next factor is tranquility or pasadi. Tranquility or calm. What's happened is, as the mind has gotten absorbed in the object, and at first that absorption can bring a lot of energy, it's, it's got the energy of the virya there, as that absorption gets more continuous, more steady, the energetic aspects of it fall away, and the absorption becomes a calm absorption, a steady absorption, a tranquil absorption. And at this point, the hindrances really do start to be at bay. The mind isn't so, um, there's not so much sort of strong energy in the body or the mind. There's certainly not a lot of distraction. And it really is a, um, a hallmark is the reduction of thought. You know, that tendency of commenting and narrating and the planning and the judging and the anxiety really starts to drop away. I've made a collection of meditation cartoons. You can tell that mindfulness is getting more popular in the culture by the prevalence of cartoons that are around, you know, mindfulness and practice, just like anything. And there's one, again, they're always kind of in gloomy, dark Zendo settings with robed figures and one leaning towards the other. The first one saying, are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? (laughs) May it be so. Um, this is often not a state we're very familiar with. I remember one teacher talking about when she first experienced calm in a deep way as a meditative state. Her note, she was doing noting practice, was calm. It's like, calm? What is that? And for many of us, we have, many of us, we have that experience, and our first response is boring. Not, you know, coming to an interview and say, nothing's happening. It's really boring. It's just dull. And if we inquire a little, what's happening is things are getting quiet. 
There's no big catharsis. There's no big drama. There's no big pity or, you know, other things going on. This is actually a good thing. Calm. Boredom is just calm with aversion. Take away the aversion and there you are. You're in this realm of uh, tranquility. Really a helpful state. I remember going on retreat. I've done a lot of my long retreats at IMS, our sister center in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, you book these retreats and flights months in advance. Well, this retreat started, it was probably September 15th, 2000. Sarah, what year was that? 9-11? 2001. 2001. I'm always bad with numbers. Anyway, it was like a few days after 9-11 to get on a flight from San Francisco to Boston. was not a happy thing to be doing, you know. And all of the drama of those times, you know, the fear and the suffering and the compassion and the sadness and the anger and all of that. Um, and flying and, and, you know, just a lot of stuff to, to get to that, you know, to decide to still go and then go and then do the trip and arrive at the retreat center. And IMS, you know, a bit like Spirit Rock, is just this haven, this refuge out in nature. And it was such a relief to get there and not be bombarded by all those images and stories and fears and, you know, rejections, all the stuff that all the media was full of, just to be secluded. I can remember the whole mind-body just going, thank you, you know, thank you for the seclusion and really um, immersing in that, just of appreciation of that. Of course, it didn't last, you know. Once I settled in and that became the normal, then, you know, my ten top fears and worries and judgments all came up. But to just have that sense of, of what, how, how much we hunger for that, actually, I think Philip was saying the other night, this is a natural state of mind, and we, have, we live in a culture of distraction. We've trained ourselves to be restless and distracted and to feel this quality of tranquility and calm. It's like a balm, a soothing uh, experience for the body and mind. So here on retreat, again, you know, just the simplicity of our life cultivates it. Don't add to it. Really listen to the the teachings, the practice of not the cell phone, not the reading, not the writing. The simplicity really helps in our lives. It's why being out in nature is so helpful for this practice. The, 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 the clarity and the simplicity of, of, of the trees and the animals. Really let that feed you. You know, the whole Zen aesthetic is all about this quality of mind. It's calmness, simplicity, just tuning into that. Here on retreat, really guarding the sense doors. It's why many people practice not engaging in eye contact, wearing a hat or looking down. Again, not kind of rejecting out of aversion, but just that sense of seclusion that allows the mind and body to settle. So helpful. And this is what develops. This tranquility, this calmness, maybe just for moments, but you've all probably had a taste of it. The stillness of the body really supports that. And again, not we never say here, sit through pain. It's not about some kind of um, effort in that direction, but just inviting stillness, inviting relaxation. The Buddha says that a person who is at ease will be naturally concentrated. So it's just the way the practice heads. 
Then the next factor, out of the tranquility, the calm, this is the samatha meditation that we're doing, concentration, samadhi, naturally develops. Now again, to, to just clarify, talk more about samadhi, the definition in the suttas is the jhanas, but samadhi is also, um, you know, you can define it as, as a jhanas, but it is a mental factor, even pre-jhana, that we can know and cultivate. I think Philip talked about access concentration or neighborhood concentration. Uh, it's called that because it's close to first jhana. It's in the neighborhood of first jhana. It has some of the qualities of first jhana, but not the full absorption. So it's a very helpful state. Here we're doing one-pointed concentration, a ikagata style of concentration, where we're just focusing on the breath. In our other kinds of retreats, Vipassana kind of retreats, we're doing kanika samadhi often, which is moment-to-moment concentration, where the, the concentration is developed by the steadiness of attention, even as the objects are changing, even as we're open to the six sense doors. Kanika samadhi, the concentration can really deepen, can even go into what some teachers call vipassana jhanas, out of doing that kind of concentration. So it can get very concentrated from that. But what, um, well, what to say, yeah. What we start to see as we develop and deepen in this way is that it's always possible to deepen more. As I said in the beginning, we don't say, you know, this is about jhana or getting jhana. It's about knowing the territory, knowing how to create the supportive factors for deepening, and then whatever happens in that direction is valuable. And the training is really the important part of that. But just getting a taste of uh, supporting the mind in that direction. As the Buddha said, never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. It's this concentrated mind that allows the insight to go deep and to start to get a taste of the mind being, and again, I think I used these words early on, malleable, flexible, and wieldy, steady. That the mind is actually, through this training, becomes our ally, becomes something that we can actually use in our practice, direct in our practice, instead of, you know, the chaotic mess it can sometimes seem, it's like, no, pay attention here, and it does. Open to this experience, and it does. And its direction is towards the wholesome. Even though concentration itself doesn't uproot the calaces, doesn't uh, rid us of the hindrances, it just temporarily suppresses them, keeps them at bay, that experience of knowing what the unhindered mind is like is so beneficial, so inspiring, so faith-producing that it's incredibly wholesome to concentrate and steady the mind. And so out of this concentrated mind, the next and last factor develops, which is equanimity, upekka. And you might know it, name of one of the buildings, because it's also a Brahma-vihara, um, in the Brahma Vihara practice has a slightly different nuance to it, but it's basically pointing to this balance of mind, this steadiness of mind, this openness of mind that can be with changing experience without being disturbed. And we can often misunderstand uh, equanimity 
and think of it as kind of detachment. It's kind of aloof and cold and distant. And I think that's a mistake, a misunderstanding that true equanimity is really alive. It's very responsive and it's very connected to what's happening. Otherwise, it's not really equanimity. It's, it's disengagement. You know, it's out there kind of disconnected. True equanimity is open to everything that's happening, the, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. But within that f- has a steadiness or an openness, a resilience is responsive, but doesn't get thrown out of balance. Or even more importantly, we do get thrown out of balance, but we know how to come back into balance. That's true equanimity. And as I said, it, it is a Brahma-vihara, just like we're doing metta here as a Brahma-vihara. Equanimity, you can practice it and practice it to deep states of absorption and, and a real felt sense of this quality, this mental factor of equanimity. And when I did it in that way as an intensive practice day after day, could really feel a subtle shift. So when the mind was in balance and when it would move forward into, you know, over-engagement or fixing, or when it would disengage and not be connected. And just that intuitive sense um, of what true equanimity is like, very physical, really. You know, it's a mental quality, but we can know it as a felt sense of just this, again, meeting the moment with this responsive resilience, balance of mind. And it has to come from a deep and profound acceptance of how things are. It can't come from shutting things out or, you know, sitting, stifling things, sitting on top of things. Everything included. Again, I mentioned that retreat I sat just after 9-11 and I talked to Joseph, Joseph Goldstein was one of my teachers and I'd go in and talk about the waves that would come where, you know, a lot of deep concentration and stillness and then the thoughts and memories and the fears because we didn't know what was happening out in the world. We were so secluded. You know, there's all kinds of fears about what was the next thing to happen. And he would say things like, don't hold that, you know, don't hold that at arm's length. Don't try to push that away. Let that in because the mindfulness, the equanimity has to be strong enough to include that as well. Ajahn Amaro, some of you may know him, he was a, a, the abbot of um, Abhayagiri, a local monastery up north, and now is the abbot of Amaravati in England. He has a great practice he would teach. Where he says something like, rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of mind and body, and then just notice whatever comes to disturb that. So rest in the natural peace and ease. That's the equanimity. But then he would go on to say, and so while you're resting, play with that a little. If you find that you can rest in peace and ease, drop in something challenging, like work or you know, Sister Mary or whatever it might be that might be challenging for you and just see how, how do the ripples affect that natural peace and ease because it's, it's not a natural peace and ease if it's so precious that it can't be open to what's happening in our lives and the world. And again, I don't mean by this we go out, you know, thinking about things and, and bringing all that in, but just this, you know, not separate aspect of our practice. And Ajahn Sumedho, uh, Ajahn, who was the 
original abbot of Amaravati, his great practice, his great offering that so many of us have taken up, he would just say, it's like this. Anger is like this. Fear is like this. Metta is like this. And he'd say, you have to know anger to know non-anger. So you don't push anger away or fear away. You have to know it. This is that intimacy, Dhammavichaya I was talking about. To know the end of it, to know its, it's, to know its opposite, to know non-anger. And then when something was happening, it's like this. Oh, fear is like this. Sadness is like this. Judging mind is like this. There's this sort of equanimity in just being able to say that. There's this acceptance. So this is the last factor and considered, you know, that there is a linearity here that when the mind is in this place of equipoise, supported by all the other factors, this is the the doorway, the access place of awakening, of the mind to open into freedom from this place of stability, supported by all the other factors. And so the, the, the jumping off place, you know, this is, but we don't, you know, get there and land and kind of wait for the door to open. Not that simple. We're always deepening and, and balancing these factors. And, you know, in, in a different, yes, you know, this is how it does evolve and happen. The mind opens. But the, the, the journey is just as important. The path is the practice of deepening these qualities. And just to see, this is what you're doing, even if you're not consciously aware of it. That any time you work with the hindrances, any time you work with desire or aversion or sleepiness or restlessness, any time you meet them with acceptance or skill or apply an antidote, it's the classic practice is called starving the hindrances and then you're necessarily feeding the factors of awakening. They just, it's like tipping the scales. And as you, as you take the energy away from the hindrances, you're necessarily feeding these beautiful qualities of mind. And again, Andrea talked about how the jhana factors themselves counterbalance um, are opposing to the hindrances. Anytime we work with the hindrances, we're feeding these factors of mind, these beautiful factors of mind. And one way I like to look at this is within each of the hindrances is a thread of wholesomeness. And we just need to catch that thread, recognize that thread, and feed that. And the hindrances then are transformed. You know, they're the manure for our awakening. They're actually opportunities rather than obstacles. And so for desire is uh, generosity or warmth, a sense of abundance. Even Dhamma Chanda is desire for the Dhamma. We need that. We need to have this love, this passion for the Dhamma. So to find that thread and turn it. For aversion, you know, it's, it's discriminating wisdom or clarity. For sleepiness, if you just bring a little bit of energy into sleepiness, there's calm. One of the factors, tranquility, just needs a little bit of energy. Had one retreat where every day at 10:30, I was just out like a light. You know those perpetual motion. It's a duck with the, you know into the you know that thing. You've all done it, right? But boing, boing, boing. And I just realized I had to do something. You know, created more energy, more interest, sat up straighter, breathed a little more deeply. Those sittings became my best sittings. From being my worst sittings, they became my best sittings. 
taking the sleepiness, working with it, with interest, a little more energy, and the, the clarity, the awakeness was there. Restlessness, can we take that energy and instead of dispersing it, feed it back in to presence, to the breath? And doubt, instead of letting it spin ourselves out, get really curious, get really interested. What is happening here? What's going on? So we're doing this all the time. And we need to know this. This is also Dhamma Vichaya for ourselves. What, what starves the hindrances? What feeds the factors of awakening? Slightly different for all of us. We're all working in different places in our practice. But we need to know for ourselves. There's no right and no wrong in this. There's just the exploration. The shorthand for the balancing of the factors is between the calming factors and the energetic factors. And that can be just something you can check in as you sit, you know. Is there just the right level? Do I need to sit up a little straighter, get a little crisper about the breath? Or do I need to relax a little, soften, get more spacious around the breath? Can be really subtle adjustment, or actually you find you really need to make a shift there. So calm and energy, or concentration and interest. So the simplicity of just breath, 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 but there's no real connection or interest. It's very rote. Do I need to get a little more curious about the breath? So we're always doing this. So again, knowing these maps, knowing these strategies, these skillful means, again, inclines the mind. Hopefully, you'll know, you'll recognize. Again, I am a bird watcher. I love watching birds and have gone to, you know, I've lived now in three different continents and each one, new set of birds. And I remember being in India for the first time, grew up in Australia and hearing, I'd never seen a woodpecker before, but somehow I read bird books, you know, you read them. and And I thought that sounds like a sound a woodpecker might make. And so I looked, and there I saw my first woodpecker. And it's just that, you know, reading the bird books, I'll sometimes, you know, I've read them, and you sort of have the image, and you see a bird you've never seen before. Oh, that's, a, you know, a rufous-sided towhee, or whatever it is, even though you've never seen one before. It's the same with these maps. As you explore the territory, you get to know them for yourself. So starting with this simple practice of just being with the breath, You know, we often say, what's the breath got to do with anything? Everything. Everything is there in the breath. How we relate to our life, to difficulty, to the beautiful aspects, all there in the breath. I just found this quote tonight, I'll close with, from the Samyutta Nikaya, where there's a whole section, it's the connected discourses on the factors of awakening. Then a certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said... An unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, venerable sir, is one called an unwise dolt? And there's often these kind of very pejorative words in the suttas. And the Buddha said, bhikkhus, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. (laughs) Venerable sir, he said, wise and alert, wise and alert. In what way, venerable sir, is one called wise and alert? Guess what he says? Venerable sir. Oh, no, sorry, bhikkhus. It is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called wise and alert. This is where this practice heads. So we begin, you know, this practice has doing in it. 
It's a conditioned practice. We construct it through creating these conditions of retreat, um, the instructions that we give. And I was talking to someone today, I said it's like a house of cards, you know, and you, you start and you kind of balance them together and it's very precarious and you only get a few up and then what? It collapses. But you get a little better at it, right? You can big, build a bigger house of cards. You can get quite big. But a house of cards is a house of cards, a constructed thing. It will necessarily collapse. And I said the, the, uh, the next level is, and I had to look it up, I didn't know what it was, it's called Jenga, I think, the wooden blocks where you build them up and what you're doing is actually taking them away, right? That's a direction the practice goes, taking away, simplifying, except it's a magic Jenga because it doesn't collapse, it just disappears at some point. But we take away, we simplify, so we construct, we build, but then we simplify, and that's the direction it goes. We let go of disturbance, and we find this deep stillness, deep simplicity, deep emptiness. That's the direction the practice goes, and that's where freedom is found. So let's just let the words settle into stillness. for your attention. We have about a half hour for walking meditation and then invite you to come back at nine o'clock. We do the metta or loving kindness practice, a lovely way to end the day.